0: No, we're not on. Now we're on. All right. So if you're tuning in online, we're glad you could join us remotely um, on our YouTube channel or the slash uh, live If you're here in person, we're glad you could be here. Appreciate you all wearing your masks so you get in and then see, uh, sitting down. That's awesome. Um, we're not running normal uh, children's ministries at this time for obvious reasons, and uh, just but we want you to know that there. Uh, if you if you do need to be excused with one of your children. The nursery has a speaker in it, so you can actually go into the nursery area and, uh, and you should still be able to hear stuff uh, and see through the window right there. It's just on the right side here. Um, if you find that there's not enough seats and you need to separate some seats or move them around, that's totally okay also. So we have a pretty full house, people still coming in, but we're glad you could be with us today. And uh, we're actually going to be diving into a topic we haven't talked about really in this way which is the Bible. I, we always talk about the Bible, but we're going to be talking about it a little bit differently today, and I'm really excited about that. So uh, we're going to start off with a, a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we're going to dive in together. So we'll give everybody just a second to get their seats, and then we'll pray together. All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for a chance to get together today. We're so thankful for your love for us, and for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for loving us enough to send our Savior, Jesus, to come and to, to pay the penalty for our sins and to allow us to have a relationship with you. We thank you for sending your spirit to teach us and to guide us and to instruct us. and just pray that you would do just that today, that as we spend time talking about you and your word and looking at your word, Father, that you would just enlarge our vision of who you are and the amazing work that you do you would also just reignite uh, the passion in our hearts for understanding your word and getting to know you better through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know over the past couple months, probably, we've all been talking about all the things we can't do because of the pandemic. I mean, isn't that true? Like, can't do this, can't do that, can't do this. And I think probably one of those words that we talk about and the way people feel during this pandemic is it's like, cheated. Cheated out of graduations, cheated out of funerals, cheated out of weddings, just feel like I haven't been able to do all this stuff. And I thought, well, how about we flip that and let's just focus on some of the things we have been able to do Mm -hmm. through this pandemic time that maybe we didn't have a chance to do before. I've noticed people spending a lot more time as families than ever before. And I think that's awesome. Uh, Just seeing the number of people who are actually like spending time together is really cool. I know a lot of people have caught up on home projects. How many of you have done at least one major home renovation project? Well, absolutely. So that's really cool, too. For me, the pandemic provided an opportunity to be involved in a Bible study in First John with, with Seth, and we got to teach it together. And it was really awesome. But normally, my schedule is so busy with other things that I don't get a chance just to have a Bible study like that. And it was really cool. And I think one of the things that really impressed me about 1 John was just how much John connected 1 John to the Gospel of John to the book of Genesis. Just really awesome the way he connected all of the scriptures together for that. And I realized that John had a pretty good understanding of the law and the prophets, and it made me think a little bit about some things. It made me think, as again, we're looking at the exile, John referred to the law and the prophets, but John had the law and the prophets. If we go back to the exile, the Babylonian exile took place in the 700 B.C., okay? So, and actually even after that, but in that range. So what does that mean? That means the law of Moses hadn't even been recorded officially yet and accepted. It had been recorded when he gave it, and it had been read, but there was no, like, official proof text of the law of Moses yet in print. In any, at the temple. Um, it means that the prophets had shared their messages, but they weren't in print either. The scrolls might have been passed around a little bit if they were recorded, which means that the Jewish exiles, when they went into Babylon, they had no Bibles. They had no scrolls. They didn't have the word of God for at least 70 years. They didn't have access to the Word of God. They didn't have access to their synagogues, which is where they would learn it. So how do you learn about God, and how do you learn about the law? For some of them, it was over 300 years before they actually got back to the place where they were able to hear the Word of God. 300 years. And this is where we see in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, in verses one to three. I want to read that together this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, 1, to 3. It had been almost 300 years since some of the Jews had gone into exile. 300 years. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, it says, that All the people gathered together at the square in front of the west gate. And they asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out from it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and all those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. We were joking this morning about starting off a Sunday morning service, and just having like David come up here and just like read the, the whole Old Testament to you for like an hour or two and then just dismiss you when you're gone. And, and Jason was commenting, yeah, probably nobody would come back the next week. I mean, could you imagine showing up on a Sunday morning and just having the book of just the Bible just read to you? That's it. That's exactly what they did from sun up until noon, four hours, five hours, whatever that ended up being, just listening to the book of the law. That's the only way they could take it in. They didn't have this in front of them. And and I think as as modern day church people, we we think that this has always been in existence, kind of like Genesis 1-1 happened and boom, there was a Bible, you know, because that's how we kind of treat it. It's like always been around and it hasn't. We want to talk about that a little bit today. But what if you were forced for 70 years to be away from the church without a Bible or a Bible app? What would your faith look like? What if you were forced to be away from the church in the Bible for 300 years? What would your faith be like? Now we hope to get into Nehemiah a little bit more in the future. We're going to be talking through the prophets and the exile period together. But for now, I think it's more important for us just to think about the Bible, and that's really what I want us to focus on today. Is is this book? Um, I want to give you some background. I want to give you some timelines because I do believe that we think of this book. It's just always being there. And when we read the Bible and we hear about the scriptures and we hear about the different passages where they're referring to the word of God, we automatically assume all of this. But I think timelines are really important. So I'm, I'm actually going to get some of you are going to be like, this is really cool. And some of you are going to be like, oh, really a timeline. So whichever camp you're in, just kind of have grace for the other one. I want us to look at a timeline here. If, yeah, there we go. So 722-721, the northern kingdom um, is actually destroyed by the Assyrians, and 10 of the tribes go into exile. Okay, so this is 721 BC. You have Israel is in two different camps. Remember, that happened under Solomon's reign. Israel was split, and you had a northern tribe, and you had a southern tribe. And the the northern tribe was 10 tribes, and they went into exile in 722-721. Oh, about 150 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, goes into exile. The first temple is destroyed, and Babylon takes over. This is the story of David. In 450 B.C., the Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are actually starting to gain recognition as the scriptures in the Jewish community. This is from a Jewish publication, by the way. So that means that The first five books that we call the the Pentateuch, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they didn't exist as a canon where the religious leaders accepted all of them as the scriptures until after the exiles took place. That's pretty, I think it's just amazing. It's like, but they talked about the law of Moses all the time, but they hadn't put it all together yet. In 250 BC, we have our first Greek translation of those five books. In 201 B.C., we have the prophets. So at this point, we have the law, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, okay, so the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the books of Moses, we have that. And we have the prophets at 201 BC. Uh, B.C. And then after the death of Christ from 50 to 125 A.D., we have the New Testament being written. And then in 90 to 150 A.D., we have this third group of Old Testament books that come into play, which are the writings. So you have the law, the prophets. But after the New Testament, then we have the writings, and then it's actually 1009 AD when we have the first, the oldest existing text of the entire Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament written. That's the oldest one that we have, um, actually in writing, is from 1009 um, AD, and then it was 1500 to 1600 when the Protestants formed their canon, meaning this. What we use today, 1500 to 1600 after the death, um, right, after the, the birth of Christ. So, this is from the Jewish Virtual Library, by the way. Um, some interesting things to note the acceptance of the Torah did not take place until after the exile. Now, they still had the Law of Moses and they would read from it, like we read in, in Nehemiah chapter eight, but the actual first five books being accepted as the Law of Moses, those five selected books, That didn't happen until after the exile. Uh, The third part of the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Old Testament, they were not accepted until after most of the New Testament was written. Again, hang on to that thought, because we're going to come back to that one. Um, While there's a lot of debate about when the Tanakh, or the Old Testament of our Bibles, was compiled, um, we actually know when the Septuagint was written, but we don't know when the first time that all of the Old Testament that we have was compiled together. Um, it was not believed to be compiled until about a thousand years after the birth of Christ. And then I guess the first time that the New Testament and the Old Testament writings come together and is considered together, um, obviously not what uh, is around 382 AD, um, which is the council in Rome. And they had extra books that we don't have in our Bibles today, in our Protestant Bibles. And so it's, it's really interesting that we look at the Bible and we're like, OK, I've always thought it was this way, but it hasn't been this way since until about like 1600s. Before that, it was a lot of other different things. It had a lot of different forms and people were questioning, is it the word of God or isn't it the word of God? And we look at it and we go, of course, it's the word of God. It's the Bible. We have it in print. It says Bible on it. It says it's the inspired word of God. It must be. I think it's really cool. So I want to stop geeking out about that and just. Answer the question of, okay, well, that's really nice, Pastor Michael. Why do you bring it up? I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a timeline nerd. I'm not a Bible nerd that way. So why do you even bring it up on Sunday morning? Um, I have dozens of Bibles in print form. How many of you have at least one Bible in print form? Right? How many of you are? Is, is anybody in the new generation where you don't even have a printed version of the Bible? You just have an app. Is anybody there yet? Okay, that's going to happen. Just realize that will happen. There will come a day where people may not have a print version. but I have dozens of them in print. I have even more of them on my computer. I have probably about 20 different translations of the Bible at my fingertips on my computer that I can compare at any given time to see um, the text of them. But if you lived during the exile, you did not have a printed Bible. You had your memory. You would go to the temple, you would listen, and you would try to remember. And then when you went into exile, you could only have whatever you remembered. Because you didn't have it printed out. You didn't have a phone and an app. You used to gather in the temple, and the priest would read you the scriptures so you can commit them to memory. But you don't even have a place to go and hear it anymore because you're in exile. You're in a country that is not your own, where you don't have your own synagogue, your own religious gathering place at all. And I've wondered, is it possible... When you look at this timeline, is it possible that such a reality helped fuel the creation of the text that we have? In other words, if you went through the exile and you didn't have stuff written down, and you went almost 300 years without getting together to to read God's scriptures, do you you think that might have motivated people to start saying, okay, let's let's focus on understanding what the, the books of the Torah are, and let's make sure we document those. And get those out to people. And let's make sure we have the prophets together. And let's make sure we, we consider God's word and make sure people have access to it. That's speculation, but I think it's, there's probably some precedent for that mindset. Because if you look at countries right now that are persecuted where they can't have the Bible, you will find that they're very careful about protecting it, preserving it, memorizing it, and distributing it. And I imagine if you were in exile, you'd be doing the same thing. But I think it's possible, I think it's possible that we as a modern church, because we have such access to digital versions and print versions, that we've probably taken it for granted and probably need to make an effort to rediscover the scriptures and the beauty of them. Because we have it around us all the time. It's, it can lose its wonder. It can lose its, it's, just, it's beauty. And so I want us today To kind of look at what God has compiled for us over the years that we have nowadays is our Bible. Our Protestant Bible is 66 books, right? Anybody know how many in the Old Testament how many in the New Testament? Pop quiz. If you can answer this one right, you get to leave today. Come on. 66 books total. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament in our Protestant Bibles. Now, if you have a Catholic Bible, you have other books that we don't have. If you have certain Orthodox Bibles, you'll have some different books even than those. But in our Protestant Bibles that we have today, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Now, the Jews didn't have that. The Jews don't have our New Testament. And we said we had 39 Old Testament books. The Jews actually only have 24 books in their Old Testament. They're like, well, wait a minute they haven't kind of broken down differently so we're going to geek out on that for a second here so just because you know oh maybe i am there we go so the jews break the old testament down into three sections okay there's the torah which is the first five books of the bible there's the second group, which is the prophets, and they have eight prophets. And you see they, they go Joshua, Judges, Samuel, which we don't consider one of the prophets, but he's in the prophets. Kings, we wouldn't put in the prophets, but they do. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then they have 12 minor prophets that so they just throw in all together at one. Okay? We break them all out. And then they have the 11 books of the writings. So we talked about the fact that the writings didn't actually, weren't actually accepted into the Hebrew canon until after the New Testament was written. That's these books over here. So even Psalms and Proverbs were questionable up until after the time of Christ. Think about that. That's amazing. We have Song of Songs. We have Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel. Some of these are like the favorite books for us with our children, aren't they? And these were questionable up until after the time of the New Testament writings. So they're referred to as the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And when you take those three letters, Torah, T, Nevi'im, N, and then the K for Ketuvim, you actually have T-N-K, Tanakh. Okay, they add the vowels in between to help you with it, but that's where you get the Tanakh and why I've highlighted those letters. So it can help you remember that. Torah, Neviim, Ketuvim, Tanakh, Old Testament. This is the way the Hebrew Bible was broken down. It's a little different than we have. Um, but this is all just organization, right? The Bible is more than just a compile of random works. And though many books, it's many books by many different authors, over hundreds and hundreds of years, the most amazing thing is that the message of the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. It's consistent. There's, there's common themes and common teachings. It's unified in its message from beginning to end. It's a piece of literature that's carefully woven together that encompasses a plethora of literary styles. So you and I have a gift in our hands. We have the Word of God, and it teaches us about Him, and it teaches us about His relationship with us, with His creation. And I want us to kind of unwrap that today. I think we've lost the wonder of it. And let me show you what I mean by that. How many of you are familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Some of you are like, yeah, I think I even had that one memorized. Some of you are like, maybe if you read it for me, I can tell you. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when you read these verses, when you think of these verses, what are you thinking? When it says all scripture is inspired by God, what comes to your mind? What do you think of when you think of all Scripture? I'm not going to go on to your answer. The Bible, the whole Bible, right? Anybody else? Many scholars put the writing of this book around 67 AD-ish. Which means that that third group of writings from the Old Testament weren't accepted yet that the New Testament hadn't been canonized yet. So the only thing you really have that's been accepted as Scripture at the time of the writing of 2 Timothy is the law and the prophets. So when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's writing to a church in Turkey. It was probably full of non-Jewish believers as well. And he writes to them, he writes to Timothy this reminder that all scripture is inspired by God. And yet the only scripture he would have that was confirmed at that time is the law and the prophets. You could possibly read this passage this way. Everything written in the law and the prophets is inspired by God and is profitable for correction, for training. See, now that's different than the way I viewed that verse. Because I viewed the verse from a New Testament, modern church era where the Bibles existed since Genesis chapter 1. So anytime it refers to scripture, it must be referring to everything that I have in my hands. But what Paul would be probably referring to in that passage would be the law and the prophets. And yet, and yet, most of us spend very little time studying the law and the prophets, right? We spend the majority of our time in the New Testament. I mean, we like the good stories of the Old Testament, but don't get me into genealogies. I have no time for that, right? I don't want to know the names of everybody who came from Israel back to the temple after Ezra built it. I really don't care about the names of all those people. Don't make me go through that. And don't make me read all of those laws about if an animal falls in a pit and what I have to do with it, right? Like, I don't have anything to do with that. Just give me the good stories. I want the David and Goliath. I want the Jonah I want the Daniel and the Lions then. I'll take those. Yeah, I'll take Genesis too. Most of Genesis is pretty good. And then the rest of it, I'll just skip to the New Testament. I'll hang on to that. But Paul is saying that that whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets that we had, actually it wasn't even the whole Old Testament then, it was just the law and the prophets. That all of that is able to teach us and to encourage us and to correct us. I think it's pretty amazing. All of that is profitable. But we have this mindset, I think, is very similar to probably what Timothy was struggling with in his Gentile church. That, well, that's the history of the Jews. It doesn't apply to me. That's, that's their history. That's their people. That's their laws. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm part of the New Testament church. But Paul was reminding Timothy that that law and that prophets, it applies to the church. Not in the keeping of every letter of the law, but in the principles and the lessons and the God of the Old Testament and his relationship to mankind. The entire Bible is an amazing book. And the more I learn to view it all as the inspired word of God, the more amazed I am at what I've missed and how cohesive it really is and how much it has to say. I cannot think of any other book that has so many authors And so many different literary styles, and yet stays consistent. So let me talk about that for just a minute. I realize I'm probably boring some of you because I'm talking about the Bible or reading the Bible. We're going to read the Bible in just a minute. But I want you to comprehend some things here. The Bible is made up of a lot of different writing styles, right? We call them literary genres. And a literary genre refers to a category or a type of writing. When you think of the Bible, what type of categories do you think of? What type of writings are there, literature styles? Anybody? History. Yeah, what else? Poetry. Yeah. Anything else? Like, oh, those are the two easy ones. Prophecy. That's one. Yeah. Storytelling. Yeah. Anything else? What's that? Songs. Yeah. Yeah. Letters, inst- instructional letters, wisdom. Yeah, you guys are doing great. There's a book that uh, an author, Roy Zuck, wrote in um, the early 90s called Basic Bible Interpretation. And he picks out seven narrative narratives. St- he picks out seven styles of literature, excuse me, in the Bible. He picks out um, legal, narrative, poetry, wisdom, the Gospels. He makes them a separate category altogether. Logical discourse. Um, and prophetic literature. Uh, Other people, other sources have parables as a separate literature style. And then some people actually have a category called uh, apocalyptic literature, which they take things like the uh, book of Revelation and parts of the second half of Daniel, and they take some of um, the the different prophet messages that talking about end times or the last days, and they make that a separate category of literature. Um, It's really not important that we settle on whether there's five or nine or 15 different styles of literature. But I think it is important that we understand that the Bible has a lot of different literary genres in it, literary styles in it. Let me show you why this is important. I brought with me three books. I brought with me a biography on Martin Luther. Okay. I also brought with me a book that my son gave me which is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Have you read this one? Great book. And then I have this other one by Tim Chester called You Can Change. Now, this one's kind of like a, you know, let's talk about ways you can make changes in your life and and how God's spirit can help you make those changes. This one's an allegorical piece that's kind of like a story telling another story. And this one is a biography of Martin Luther. If you were to read this biography, what would you hope the outcome would be? Like, what would you hope to get out of reading this biography? Information about what? About Martin Luther. And what else? Encouragement from his experience. Perhaps an understanding of the history of his day and what it was like to be in in his day and in his time. Right? Would you come away with it like, with a list of 10 things you could do to be like Martin Luther? Probably not. Probably not. It's not why you're reading a biography. But if you are reading this book, you can change. You're probably thinking, I want to come away with a couple things that I can do that will help me change, right? You're going to come away from this book a little bit differently than you would from the biography. And then what about this one? It's an allegory. If you're reading this book, what are you hoping for at the end? What's the, what's the end goal? What's that, Connor? To think. Yeah, you want it to challenge your thinking and to make you start to really think through your life and your circumstances, and in this case, your faith as well. This one might be more contemplative. This one might be more motivational. And this one here might be just more inspirational. This one's to inspire, one's to motivate, and one's to contemplate. Yeah, I don't come to each of these books with the same expectation. and I don't pick them up for the same reason. And when we approach the scripture, we have to realize that there is poetry and there's allegory, there's parables, there's history, there's biographies, there's even instructional letters. And every one of them that we come to is meant to engage us in a different way. It's meant to make us think about things differently. Some for us to contemplate, think about, some to inspire. Some to challenge us on things that we need to be doing. I want to give you a little video because I know you'd rather watch a video than listen to me. I'm going to give you a short little video from some guys at this place called the Bible Project. If you've never seen the Bible Project, you need to check them out. They're awesome. But they actually talk about, they actually take the scriptures and they break them down into three different literary styles. And they talk about it in one of their videos. They just want to pop this up for on the screen for a minute. Hopefully the audio will still come through uh, for those of you that are tuning in online. And then we're going to talk about a couple of these. Oops, wrong one. What happened? Maybe there it is. You have sound? Bluetooth? Oh. Hold on, tech issues. We did not get a chance to... uh
1: There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're going to have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for. Right. They're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways. Yes. And so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Nearly half the Bible is narrative. Yes. And this is no accident. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. Our brains are actually hardwired to take in information through story. And stories are really enjoyable. Why is that? Well, stories train us to make sense of the seemingly random events that happen in life by taking those events and then putting them in a sequence. And then together, you can start to see the meaning and purpose of it all. And what links this all together? Well, good stories always have a character who wants something. And then through these characters, an author can explore life's big questions, like who are we or what's really important in life? And a good story always involves some kind of conflict. Some challenge to overcome, just like in our own lives. And that forces us to think about our own challenges. Why there's so much pain or disappointment in the world, and then what can we do about it? And stories usually end with some kind of resolution, giving us hope for our own stories. Since these are Bible stories, are the characters showing me how I should live? Yeah, that's not quite the point. Most Bible characters are deeply flawed. You should not be like them. But we are supposed to see ourselves in them, which helps us then see our lives and failures from a new perspective. And without even realizing it, these stories will start to mess with you and change how you see the world and other people and yourself. Now, there are different types of narrative in the Bible. Yeah, there's historical narrative, but also narrative parables, short biographical narratives like the four Gospels. We'll look at all these in later videos. Okay, next up is poetry, which honestly, I don't read a lot of. Yeah, you're like most people, but one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Yeah, why so much poetry? (laughs) Well, poems mainly speak through dense, creative language, linking together images to help us envision the world differently. Poems use lots of metaphor to evoke your emotions and your imagination. Lots of fancy language, but wouldn't it be easier just to tell me what I need to know? Well, think about it. In life, we tend to form mental routes and we take in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning and what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path into new territory sneaky and there's different types of poetry in the bible there's lots of types of songs or psalms there's the reflective poetry of the wisdom books and then the passionate resistance poetry of the prophets okay the last big literary type is called prose discourse and it makes up a quarter of the bible Yeah, these are speeches, letters, or essays. And the focus here is building a sequence of ideas or thoughts into one linear argument that requires a logical response. Like, hey, have you thought about this thing? You should also consider how it connects to this other thing. And if you do, then you will see that this is the result. And in light of that conclusion, therefore, you should probably stop doing that one thing so that this other thing will be the outcome. So you're persuading me with reason? Yeah, discourse forces you to think logically and consistently, and then do something about it. Biblical discourse is found in law collections, in wisdom literature, and the letters written by the apostles. Okay, so each book of the Bible has one literary style. No, actually most books have a primary literary style, like narrative for example. But then embedded in the narrative, you'll come across poems or parables or a collection of laws. Every biblical book is a unique combination of literary styles. And to read that book well, I need to be familiar with each literary type and how it works. Yeah, so you know what to pay attention to and what questions you should ask.
0: All right, so they end there, and we're going to hold that off there. Um, it goes on a little bit more. But you get the idea. There's all these different styles of writing, and each one requires a different response and is meant for a different reason. Um, I like the fact that he breaks it, that they break it down into the different ways that we process information. I find that most of us in the church world, we focus on the prose discourse, or the logical discourse is the other way that it's referred to. It's, we like the arguments, We like the things to do. We want to do lists. We want to walk away, especially on a Sunday morning. We want a message where we can walk away with a couple things we need to know and a couple things we need to do. Logical discourse, that's what most of our preaching is about nowadays. Um, if you've ever read a book like How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, then, then you, you read it so that you can have a strategy on how to improve. If you've read a book like The Five Love Languages, any of you have read that? Yeah. Hopefully you read that book thinking I'm going to learn how to speak my wife's or husband's love language better, not just, well, I'm going to get a list of things for them to do. But you read a book like that. So that you can learn how to live better. And that's what logical discourse is about. It's like reading the book of James in the New Testament. It would be a great example of this. Um, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. If you have your Bibles flip over to there, I'm going to give you an example of this logical discourse. Um, James, I think, is a great, great author in this area. James 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So consider it joy when you have problems because you know your problems are going to help you trust God more. And if you trust God more, then you're going to be more complete and more mature in your faith. That's logical discourse. We studied the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 is another great one. Listen to John's logic and argument here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. And This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. I mean, he's got stuff all over the place. You can't say you love God if you're not walking in him. And if you're walking in him, you're going to love him. And you're going to love others. And if you don't, then you really don't love him. He goes back and forth. The book of First John is like a mind-bending um, book that it just continually bounces back and forth with these logical arguments. And while prose discourse or logical um, discourse is not the largest section of Scripture I think if you looked, if you think back on the churches you've attended, if you look online at church websites where they have their sermons posted, this is where the modern day church spends probably at least 80 to 90% of its time. 80 to 90% of our time as a a modern church is spent in logical discourse, even though it's only about 24, 25% of the scriptures. And even though the apostle Paul told Timothy that all scripture, law and prophets, Is profitable for teaching and instruction and learning. We spend most of our time here because, honestly, it preaches well. It it does. It's like, here's what you need to know, and here's what you need to do. And that's how I was taught in Bible school to preach. We'll talk about that more next week, Lord willing. It appeals to our Roman mindset, our logical mindset, um, to have something that we can wrestle with and argue and come away with something we have to do. But the biggest section of Scripture is probably the narrative section, And if you look at historical narrative, when you learn history in school, sometimes the lessons have applications. Like if we were studying right now civil rights in history class, obviously there's applications even to our current society today. Watch the media. We teach history sometimes so that we can grab lessons from it. Sometimes it's just so that we can learn what took place. If I'm reading about the presidents of the United States, I'm not necessarily reading that so that I can think of of things that I need to apply in my life. If I'm reading about maybe some of the social injustices, I might be thinking about things that I need to be more active in. So sometimes history is meant to give us lessons and sometimes it's not. Um, I think this is very similar to much of the historical narrative of the Old Testament. When we read about the wilderness wanderings of Israel or in the New Testament, we read about the book of Acts where the church... Was launched, or the majority of the Old Testament um, and the Gospel narratives—it's all—it's—it's narrative. Joshua chapter one, verses one through three. So, do you you have your Bibles again? Flip to Joshua chapter one. It reads like a story. It's a narrative passage. The book of Joshua is. In chapter one, verse one of Joshua, verses one through three, it says this: After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant. The Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant is dead. Apparently, the idea that Moses is gone is important because it's been repeated a couple of times here. Moses, my servant is dead. And now you and all the people prepared to cross over the Jordan to the land I'm giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where your sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. So it starts out as a story. You have a little bit of a context. Moses is dead. Joshua is the new leader. They're going to enter into the promised land. It's picking up on a previous story. It's narrative. It's a great narrative, too, by the way. Um, We also see this in the Gospels. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Are you familiar with the Gospel of Luke? It was written by who? Trick question. Luke, right. Written by Luke. And Luke was a physician. Very detailed guy. Also had a very big heart for the poor and for those that were underserved in the society. You'll see that throughout all of his readings, all of his writings, excuse me. Luke chapter one, verses one through four, starts out this way. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you, an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. It's a narrative. He even says it. I thought it would be good to write down this narrative, this story that's telling what took place during these times. And I'm going to approach a narrative different than I am an allegory, different than I am a self-help book, even though it may have some of those elements to it. I asked my father-in-law, I mentioned biographies, I asked my father-in-law, he loves to read biographies, um, what he likes so much about biographies. And I really loved his insight into this. He said he likes to get, he likes to see what people's lives are like and the biographies he likes the most are the ones that actually show the the weaknesses of the person as well as the strengths. In other words, don't don't just one side it and give me all the good stuff about the person. I wanna know how they also failed at times. I wanna see the real person. You couldn't ask for a better description of the biographies of the Bible, could you? You have some great men and women of God who are also deeply flawed, as they brought out in the in the video. Um, we read about Moses. Moses was an amazing man of God, right? He led Israel out of Egypt. He also told God no many times before he went. Um, he murdered someone. He ran away, and eventually he disobeyed God and lost his right to enter the promised land. But he was a great man of God that everybody refers to. He's Moses. I mean, he's the founder of their faith. He he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Biographies are designed to give us an insight into the life of the person we're reading about, and perhaps to make us think about our own lives. So as we come to narrative, we're going to approach it differently than the logical discourse. Logical discourse is, what do I need to know and what do I need to do? But narrative is like, Okay, I see that person's life. How could they do that? And then it makes me think, well, what about my life? Am I doing that? Am I guilty of the same things? Then we get to poetry. Any of you like to read poetry? Maybe two of you? Okay. Three. You're like, if I have to. Poetry is a, what's that? Depends on the poet? Yeah. Yeah, some are really good. Some are really twisted. Um depends what kind of poetry you like. Um, we read poetry, and we see it as a way to invoke deeper thoughts. Sometimes um, it, it's it's metaphorical and illustrative. sometimes it's it's just more blunt and direct in our lives. Um, the poetry of scripture can either remind us of a historical event, like most of the psalms, refer back to the historical events of the Old Testament. Back back to the the events that took place in the Exodus. A lot of the New Testament poems the, and songs. So when Mary finds out that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, she actually has a song. And all of that is just references back to the prophets and the law. So sometimes poetry in the Bible is taking us back to make us connect with the bigger story of the Bible. Um, other times it's meant to really um, make us think about an allegory. For instance, the Song of Solomon. Have you ever read that? So, you know, that that's not one you want to do with your kids um, necessarily. You might want to wait till they're a little bit older to get into that book. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. Um, when you read the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, not only is it a, a story about, about two lovers, but it's also an allegory about the relationship of God to his people. And so it's meant to, to get you to think on multiple different levels, not only your earthly relationships, but your heavenly relationship with your creator. It's poetry. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most famous of all of the poetry chapters, I would say, in the Bible, right? It's quoted all the time. In fact, any of you think you could actually quote it from memory? Anybody? Psalm 23 from memory? Yeah, I won't make you. You're all like, I'm not going to say yes because he's going to make me do it. I won't make you do it. Okay. You can say yes if you think you can. Uh, How many think you can get at least most of it? You might just mess up a couple. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. It's kind of like naming off the 12, the 12 apostles. You can come up with like, like 10 of them. And then like the last one is like, you know, Rudolph or something. You just don't know what that last one is. So Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm reading this from the CSB, so it's going to read a little different than you might have memorized it, because most of you probably memorized it in the King James also, right? Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He may, what's that? The ESV, yep. NIV, cool. Um, we're not even going to get into versions of the Bible today, just so that you know. You'll get, otherwise, you'd be here till like 5 p.m. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life and he leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live now if you walk away from that thinking I need to do better feeding wherever God is leading you probably missed the point of that psalm we want to come up with an application the application is look at God and what he's done you realize who he is and how he watches over us it's not about me that psalm it's about the Lord our shepherd and what he does According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, poetry is literature that evokes a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience or emotional response through language. In other words, it uses rhythm and it uses sound to engage us in different ways than, say, history would or than logical discourse would. You don't approach poetry the same way you approach a self-help book. Then there's the parables. The closest thing we really have to this would be allegories, right? Pilgrim's Progress, any of you have read that? Allegory, right? It's, it's like a big parable in many ways. Uh, the parables, or the great divorce that I brought with me, they're meant to tell a story that parallels another reality or another story. Jesus used parables all the time when he talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending upon which gospel writer you're reading. So um, Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can I use to describe it? You should be familiar with this one. It's like a mustard seed, right? Anybody you familiar with that? It's like a mustard seed. That when sown upon the soil, it is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And yet when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches that so the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Parables. They're meant to help us Think through the context of where the passage was, who he's speaking to, and what he's saying to relate a truth about something that's meant to be, I'm going to say hidden, in the words of Jesus. He spoke to them in parables to hide certain things from them at that time. Especially to the religious leaders of that day. But to make us think and to ponder what was really meant or said. Wisdom literature... Uh, I tried to think of a modern-day comparison to wisdom literature, and we don't have it. (laughs) We don't. Wisdom literature is very much an Eastern thing. Um, We don't have much like that in our society today, and it's rarely meant to be taken at face value. Wisdom literature is meant to make you think and to contemplate and to meditate on a passage. So in our Bibles, we have a lot of wisdom literature. Proverbs is one of them. Um, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job. Ecclesiastes says this. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 2. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. So you read that, and you think, okay, so I shouldn't go to parties, I should go to funerals. That would be the literal translation of that passage, right? But what is he really saying through it? And every time I read a passage like Ecclesiastes 7, it's amazing how much more insight I get into what he's really trying to say. What he's not saying is, it's better that you die than that you're born. He does say that in the next verse. But he's not meaning it in the literal sense. He's talking about a lot more than that. He's talking about the meaning of life and the purpose of life and our relationship with God. And we have to stop and we have to consider it. Now, some are a bit easier to comprehend, right? The book of Proverbs, a lot of little one-liners that are great in there. Just to show you that we shouldn't be taking them literally, my favorite proverb is, one of my favorites is probably Proverbs 26, 11. If you memorize that one, you should. As a dog returns to its vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. Isn't that great? is just a great picture? How many of you have ever been grossed out by a dog returning to its vomit and eating it? Isn't that just disgusting? Like, I can't believe you brought that up, Mike. Like, it's a disgusting picture that the author wants you to think about. Because to repeat the same foolish mistake over and over again, to struggle in the same area and wallow in the same sin over and over again, is just the same as that dog going back to its vomit. It's gross. And then that dog comes up and gives you a big kiss. That's even grosser. Again, the goal of wisdom literature isn't to say we shouldn't eat our own vomit. That's not what it's saying here. It's trying to get us to think about our lives and our lives in relationship to how we live and how we're living for God. If you think about the nation Israel, they kept making the same mistakes over and over and over again, right? Any of you relate to that at all? Any of you have something that you struggle with over and over and over again? I don't want you to like raise your hand and confess at this point, but you know, um, I know I know a lot of people who struggle with things like pornography. I know people who struggle with anger, I know people who struggle with with talking about others and gossiping. And you do it and you're like, I need to stop doing that. And then you do it again, and you're like, I need to stop doing that. And these proverbs are like defining what we're like at that point. It's a pretty graphic picture, but it's made to make us think about our lives, not just the lives of others. And how we're going to live. Each type of literature creates a different experience and solicits, solicits a different response or emotion or thoughts. And each book of the Bible has different portions of these different literary styles. I have, if I can get back to it, I have a slide I want to show you. I took the liberty of doing this. I went through the Gospel of Mark, which the gospels are predominantly narrative. And I went verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and said, what is this verse talking about? 70 percent, according to to the way that I would define narrative and everything else, 70 percent of the gospel of Mark is just narrative. It's just telling the story of what took place. He walked to this town. He met this person. He went over here to this region and did these things. Nine percent of them were parables. Six percent was prophecy about his coming death, mostly, that he was going to be dying. Twelve percent was instruction. Do this. Instruction. 3% were just Old Testament quotes. But 70% of the Gospel of Mark is simply telling you a story. But there's also some teaching and there's some prophecy. So as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you come to the narrative part, and you're meant to be thinking about the history of the people and what's going on in their lives. You're supposed to be getting an idea for their culture and the things that they're thinking through, like looking at 2 Timothy and saying, okay, when he says all scripture, he's talking about the law and the prophets, because his history and his culture is this time frame and this timeline. And this is what he's referring to, to these people who live in this region. Narrative. And then you have parables, teachings that were meant to contemplate with poetry. You have prophecy, which also is considered part of the poetry. If you add those two together, it's 15%, only 12% is instruction. So again, as you look at the relationship, 70% narrative, 15% of it is talking about poetry. And then you have about 12% that's talking about actual things that we should be doing. And most of them were specific commands to the disciples that may or may not apply to us. Like, go into this town and get a donkey. That was an instruction. I don't think Jesus has told me today I need to go into Carthage and get a donkey. So it doesn't necessarily apply to me, but the lessons around it do. And you might be thinking, all right. Pastor Mike, you have officially managed to make me really question what a Sunday morning message is like. Why would you bring all this up? Well, it's not so that I can give you three application points to take home today that you need to know about the scriptures and five things that you need to do to be a better scripture student. That's not what the point is today. The Bible is not only one of the greatest literary compilations in the history of mankind, but it's God's story about his mission, his purpose, his people, and his work. We have the very words of God that tell us about him and what he wants to do in the world and and through us into the world. written over hundreds of years by dozens of authors. And yet it consistently tells the same story about the same God through many different styles of literature. I wanted to share what God has been teaching me about this gift of his word. So I went to Bible college in the late 80s. I became an elder at NCF in 1990. And I feel like the more I read and study God's word, the more I find out I just don't know. Just about the time I think I have it figured out, I'm just blown away with things that I never even saw before because God's word is so rich and so full of of truth that you can't get it all in one path. It would be the rest of my life trying to figure it out. And the more I spend time in God's word, the more I learn not about the things I need to do. Yeah, that happens. But I learn about God and his heart. And that's why we have his word. As we continue to study God's word together in the years to come, it's my prayer that we would rediscover the wonder of God's word. And the wonder of the God who created it. I want to leave you with a quote this morning. I know I filled you with all sorts of facts, and I've jumped you all over Scripture, and I've given you charts, and I've given you timelines. And you're thinking, that's not very motivational, Pastor Mike. For me, it is. Because it helps me to understand just how significant this work is to God. But he's given us his very words to consider, to read, to meditate on to confront us when we need it, and make us think about life and how we live, not just from step by step, but in philosophy, in the way that we that we view mankind, in the way that we view our relationships. Why Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, could compare Christ and the church as a bride and a, and a groom because he's talking about bigger pictures of what God is doing and how it relates to each of us. There's so many levels of learning in God's word. And what I don't want to do, is I don't want to scare you away from trying. Every time you read God's word, there's something else he wants to teach you. Every time you spend time going through a passage, there's something else he can show you about him and his heart. You could read it 70 times from front to back and still not know it all. And the more you learn, the more you read, the more amazing God is, and the more precious and beautiful this word becomes. So what I would hope is that we would spend time in the years to come discovering all of God's word, viewing it in the way that God had it written. Maybe he wants us just to contemplate something. I had a feeling you were going to come with that one. If I were to venture a guess, because Paul doesn't really say whether he felt his words were inspired. Uh, First Thessalonians, okay. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Yeah, he'd be talking about the gospel in particular, but I don't know if he, if he meant that his words penned to the churches were also the word of God. That's where I'm not sure I could draw that line. Um, but definitely as they presented the word of God, realize that John also referred to Jesus as the word of God. So I would say in regards to the gospel and Jesus being the Messiah and their response to that, yes, um, because they were preaching the word of God. But when we'll talk about preaching the word of God next week because we're going to talk about preaching next week. Um, so I, I, that's the way I would answer that one. Do you have a different answer? I do. I do. Um, and, and as you look at each of those councils that went through that we talked about the different timelines and such, there's at least at least six major councils that, we, that viewed the books that we have in our Bibles and said, yeah, we believe these are the Word of God, and they had different criteria for them. Um, for instance, in the New Testament, they were to be written by the apostles. Um, that was part of the criteria, and then there were other things. Not all of the works made it. For instance, in Corinthians, there's four letters to the Corinthians, but only two of them are in our Bibles. Two of them are not considered uh, part of our canon, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so... Greater minds than I have debated this, and I'm going to go with what they have because I haven't. I don't have the knowledge to study the original manuscripts. Um, some of you are big on confessions, and you understand some of the different, like the Westminster Confession and, and some of those other confessions. Those are actually places where they just define um, what the Word of God is and what they see as the, as the canonized scripture as well. So you can check some of the confessions that you might have studied. So do I think it is? I do think, and as we approach 2 Timothy, and I think it's why David is bringing it up, As we approach 2 Timothy, um, as a New Testament church, it is also appropriate for us to say that all scripture is inspired by God, Old and New Testament. It's also important, though, that we understand the context of what Paul was writing to Timothy. And that at that time, he was specifically referring to what had been written, which would have been the law and the prophets at that time. Because it helps us to understand what's going on in their church at that time. Is that what you're bringing up for me? Okay. All right. So uh, if you have other questions about that, I'll, I'll take them afterwards and I'll direct them directly over to David. So um, it's because I'm preaching, I get to punt them all. Um, but we should have a, a love and appreciation and a knowledge. Do you know where your scriptures came from? Do you believe that they're inspired the word of God? Do you believe that they are valuable to, to show us how to live with God and for God? That uh, would be some of those questions we should be asking. But more importantly, you see it as a beautiful work that explains and describes and reveals to us an amazing God who loved us enough throughout all of history to continue to pursue us and to pursue us and to pursue us and to to pay the ultimate price in giving his son so that we could have a relationship with him. That's the message that the Bible talks about over and over and over. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes this. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've never stopped giving thanks for you, as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And I think that's my prayer for each of us today. And God has given us his word to reveal that might and that power and the greatness of what he has accomplished through Christ for us. If we'll just spend time ingesting it, reading it, processing it, meditating on it, being confronted by it, just being in awe of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have taken the time and the energy. Your spirit has led and directed in the lives of so many great men of faith that have penned your heart and your words for us to, to read and to understand today. Father, forgive us for taking your word for granted. have so many printed versions and digital versions, and yet we can go all week without even looking at it until it's time for Sunday. But help us, Father, to have a love for you and for your word. Just to be amazed at the beauty of what you've compiled. To understand and to wrestle with the different styles of what you've written and the messages that are there but not so that we can say, look how much we know, but so that in the end we can say, look how great you are. and That we can be drawn more and more to you and be more and more faithful to the message that you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I want to thank you for sticking through that. Um, we have not done a message about the Bible before. we preach on the Bible, preach passages from the Bible. But I really wanted us to spend some time understanding a little bit more about the Bible and how to read it and what it is and those types of things. Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about um, teaching and preaching in the church. And was this this sermon okay or was it acceptable or would not be according to biblical standards? And we're going to talk about that next week, Lord willing. Uh, But before we leave today, um, David's going to come up. I'm going to invite um, the Pandoffs, all three of them, to come up. So we can uh, pray over them. This is their last Sunday with us. What? No, 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 no. So all three of the pandoffs are up here. And uh, that's that's an announcement in case you missed it. Uh, So congratulations to Paul and Tavi. We're really excited for you. They are expecting. um Thanks for the clarification. Yes, yes. Um, And you you said you're going to find out if it's a boy or a girl. Eventually. Okay. This is all pretty new. To them. Well, I hope it's either a boy or a girl. How's that? Okay. Yeah. So uh, we're really excited for you guys. And uh, we've really appreciated having you guys as part of our church family. Um, it's been awesome. Um, really appreciate the, just all the different ways you guys have served, whether it was helping out with youth group or with watching people's kids or being a part of people's lives and their families and connecting with them for meals or Playing drums or singing or whatever it was, we, you guys have been such a big part of this family over the last couple of years. We really are so grateful uh, for that time, and we know you've God's got a reason for you to to leave this area and to go to Virginia. Um, and we are going to be praying for you for that as well. Um, since it is your last Sunday, I, I should my anyway, um, since it is your last Sunday, we'll give you a chance. If you have any words of encouragement or um, things you'd like to share with the church family, you can do that. And then David's going to uh, pray over you um, as we finish up our time. You may.